and you may be seated. You know, I want to begin this morning really by asking you a question. And here's the question, what amazes you? I mean, what truly just blows you away, leaves you speechless? There's probably just so many different ways in which we would all answer that, different ways that we would answer that. Some of us would say, man, seeing a 10-point trophy buck out in the woods, now that would amaze me. Other people might say that what amazes them is seeing a new life, a baby coming into the world. While others might say it amazes them to see their team hit a last-second shot to win the NCAA tournament. That might amaze them. But a lot of different things amaze us. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought of what might perhaps amaze Jesus. Uh, Jesus is, of course, the Son of God. He is, in fact, God, fully God. Always has been, always will be. He's eternal. Uh, He has no beginning. He has no end. He's all-powerful. There's nothing he cannot do. Uh, He is all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't know or nothing that he doesn't understand. So you almost have to wonder if Jesus is even capable of being amazed. But when we look through the Word of God very carefully, we find out that, in fact, He is. We read, at least in two different accounts, when Jesus marveled, that is, when he was amazed. Uh, We read one just a little while ago, and it's interesting because whenever he's amazed, it always deals with the issue of faith. He's always amazed when it comes to people's faith. Uh, One chapter before this one, in chapter 6, we saw in the very beginning uh, of that chapter that Jesus and his disciples went home to his hometown of Nazareth, and as he was there, he he marveled and he was amazed at their lack of faith in him. And then in Luke chapter 7, if we were to turn there and look there, there's a story of a centurion, and, and the centurion had a servant that was sick, and he sent some messengers to Jesus, and he said, please come, my servant is very sick, please come and, and, and heal him. And Jesus agrees that he will come and to, to heal him, and as he comes and as he makes his way, uh, the centurion sends yet another servant and says, you don't even have to come to the house, you're a great man of authority, just say the word And I know that my servant will be healed. And Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus marveled. And he said that he had never seen such faith in all of Israel. He was amazed by that faith. Now, if Jesus is amazed by great faith, then he was certainly amazed by the woman that we're going to study about this morning, the Seraphonician woman. What I want to do is we're going to work as we always do, very carefully through the text of Scripture. We're going to unpack, understand the background, understand the context. And then what we want to see is before we leave, we want to understand what is it that makes great faith? What does it look like? And God, will you give us that same great faith in you? So what was it about this woman's faith that made it so great? Well, let's begin by looking at verse 24 there. The Bible says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is going somewhere, and and the there that he's leaving and leaving from is a place called Gennesaret. We saw this just a couple weeks ago, that Jesus, right before this event, he was in Gennesaret, and and there he was confronted by uh, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and uh, concerning this issue of ceremonial cleansing. They suggested that his disciples had broken the oral law by not washing their hands and cleansing their hands in a ceremonial way before they ate. And so Jesus condemns them and he says, listen, he goes, you are elevating your own man-made traditions and laws above the very law of God. 
And after he condemns them, they move away, and then he draws the crowd to him. And he begins to explain in a very compassionate, very loving, clear way. He says, listen, he says, your problem of defilement and being sinful, you become sinful not because of that which is on the outside of you working in, but your problem before God, the source of your defilement, is found within you moving out. In other words, the source of our problem and what breaks our relationship with God and puts us in such a precarious, awful situation is that we have a heart full of sin. And so he begins to teach us. And when he's done, the Bible says that he leaves there and he went to another place. And this went is, is a very rare Greek word. It's not the normal word used for went. And so what it tells us, or at least Mark is trying to suggest to us, that Jesus is going for a very specific reason. He's not just kind of traveling and just kind of going by the wind. He's going for a purpose. He doesn't tell us what that purpose is, but in context, we kind of have an idea. We understand that things are really heating up between he and the religious leaders and between he and and Herod Antipas. And so things are getting so hot, he feels like maybe he needs to leave town for a period of time. Also, he and his disciples have been trying to get away. They've been trying to get away for several chapters now. Do you remember that? They try to get away. They got in a boat to try to go to the other side to take a rest. And they get to the other side and the crowd's there. They can't get away from the crowds. And Jesus needs some time alone with his disciples to rest and to be able to teach them the truths of God. And so they leave and they, they begin to work their way up to the northwestern uh, part there from uh, Gennesaret. And the Bible says here that they entered a house and they did not want um, they did not want, or they did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. Now, this isn't the major point of the text, but you need to understand historically, many messages have been preached just on that one phrase. Yet he could not be hidden. Christ cannot be hidden. I'm always nervous whenever I sit down and talk with people and begin to kind of witness with them wherever we are about Jesus Christ. And they say this, maybe you've experienced this. Well, listen, I'm religious, but I just believe that's a private issue. I just believe that is something, you know, that politics we shouldn't talk about. That's just something private. You can't be private when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't be. Because if Jesus, if you were truly born again, That means the Spirit of God dwells within you. And you cannot hide Jesus because you are literally progressing to become more like Him every single day. Your lips can't help but to speak the words, much like the the, the disciples in the early part of Acts. They said, we could not help but to speak what we have seen and what we have heard. We can't help it. We have to tell you about who Jesus is. Uh, they couldn't help but to begin to look more like Jesus, to speak more like Jesus. Can I just, can I just tell you, if you're sitting there and, and, and you say, well, nobody would ever know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, though I've been a believer of Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, <clears throat> if nobody can tell you you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're most likely not a true believer in Jesus Christ. He cannot be hid when his spirit dwells within us. And Mark doesn't tell us here specifically where entire Jesus, where Jesus went, but he doesn't need to because it's significant that he went to Tyre to begin with. Because we have to understand historically that there's a long history of the people of Tyre being antagonistic towards Israel. 
All the way back, many years before this in the Old Testament, we see that wicked queen Jezebel, you may have remember sweet Jezebel, you know, we all love to name our daughters Jezebel, don't we? No, we don't because she's so wicked. And why was she so wicked? Because she incorporated and influenced almost the entire northern kingdom into, um, into pagan worship of Baal. And so even to that day, to the day of Jesus, many hundreds of years later, they're still struggling with this idol worship from their influence from the people of Tyre. So they begin to hate the people of Tyre because whenever they be, God's people begin to worship these fall gods, they're sent into captivity or they're disciplined by God in some way. So they hate those people entire. And so um, we even read, uh, Josephus says, the famous historian said of Tyre, that they, they were notoriously our bitterest enemies. So the fact that Jesus, this respected rabbi, and some people maybe even thinking that he might actually be the promised Messiah, for him to go up to an area of Tyre is really kind of unusual. In fact, the only reason that they could expect that Jesus a possible Messiah would go up there would be to go to judge and to wipe them out. But we see very clearly that that's not Jesus' purpose. Why? Because Jesus is not the type of Messiah that they are expecting him to be. And so in verse 25, if they were looking to go away and to be able to get some rest, that plan was immediately foiled. Because when they're in the home, the Bible says, excuse me, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him She came and she fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, guys, so far in our study of the book of Mark, uh, people are constantly falling down before Jesus, aren't they? I mean, we've seen it time and time again. We saw it beginning in chapter 3 and verse 11. Mark just told us, it said, whenever there was somebody with a demon that came in contact with Jesus, they would fall to their feet and humbling themselves before Christ. We read, again, the story uh, there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, of the man who had a legion of demons. Do you remember that? A legion of demons. And he comes and he wants to lay blows and beat Jesus up. But as soon as he gets upon him and recognizes that he's the son of the living God, he falls to his feet in submission. Then the last time we saw somebody falling at their feet, it was very significant. It was found in chapter 5 in verse 23. It was a man by the name of Jairus. Jairus, if you remember, he was a man. He was a Jew. And he was a very influential leader and ruler in the local synagogue. He was a man that had it all together. He had an impressive resume, an impressive list of credentials. But yet he came to Jesus because he had a need. And his need was his daughter. His daughter was at the point of death. You remember the story? And he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. And he falls at Jesus' feet and he needs him help. And he implores him, Jesus, heal my daughter. She's at the point of death. Do you remember this? And he calls out to her and Jesus heals his daughter. But now here's another story of somebody immediately after comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. But this picture could not be any more in stark contrast than than anything we could possibly imagine. Because here it's not a man that falls before Jesus. It's a woman who falls before Jesus. It's not a Jew. It's a Gentile. It's not somebody who was greatly respected. It was somebody who was greatly hated. In fact, they weren't even coming for the same reason. They both wanted help for their daughter, but he was coming for a physical ailment, and she was coming for a spiritual ailment. Her daughter was filled with a demon. She didn't know what to do. We've already seen in the scriptures that what do you do when 
a child or somebody is possessed by a demon, we know the ravaging effects of that. We saw in the man who had a legion of demons, do you remember? Nobody could bind him, nobody could help him. He was, he was howling like a wolf or like an animal out in the countryside. Nobody could constrain him. Nobody could keep him even bound with chains. He would just rip him apart. He was a violent man. People were terrified of him. If we were to look even later in the book, uh, and we'll see this in a little bit, in Mark chapter 9, there's a young boy, a man's son, who is possessed by a demon, and he's constantly throwing himself into the fire and constantly throwing himself into the water to drown himself, to alleviate himself of the suffering that he's going through. And this is very much of what this woman would have been experiencing. This woman knew suffering. She knew what it was like to be in pain. She knew what it was like for each and every day to be a day of a living hell and to see her children, see her child in complete and utter despair and turmoil and pain every day of her life. And nothing, nothing pains us more than the pain of her children. And, but there's nothing she could do. There's, she's been everywhere. She's, she's gone everywhere. So where does she go? She now comes to Jesus. But the question is, will Jesus even help her? See, remember who was reading this book. It was written to Gentiles, not to Jews. So when they're reading it, and they read the story of Jairus coming to Jesus, remember the man, remember the, 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 the Jew, remember the leader of the synagogue, when he comes and Jesus says, yes, I'll heal your child, they're thinking, of course he's going to heal him. He's a Jew. He's got his all, life all together. He's got an impressive list of credentials. His credentials were working for him. But check this out. But this woman was not a Jew. She was the enemy of the Jews. Her credentials weren't working for her. They were working against. And the question is, will Jesus even help her? And let me just tell you this. He will help her. Why? Because Jesus does not respond to credentials. You and I might. But no credentials impress Jesus. Nor do they dissuade Jesus. Whoever you are, how, how big you are. You, you, guys, you have felt this, right? You have felt somebody else getting the job over you because of their credentials. Because their dad was a certain person or their mother was a certain person or, or they were affluent and they had a certain amount of money. You, you know what that's like. So they're sitting back going, hey, we get that, but what about her? And the point of the message is Jesus doesn't respond to credentials. Jesus responds to faith. And if you know your Bibles, and I certainly hope that we do, in the Old Testament, there is a hint there that something spectacular is about to happen. Back in, chapter, uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through, 7 through 21, we read about yet another Seraphonician woman who was, who was met by a very godly man by the name of Elijah. And there she was starving, and she had a son that was starving, and they only had enough food for one more day, a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. They were going to make it, and then they were going to die, and Elijah is sent by God, and God says, I prepared this widow for you. Go to the Seraphonician woman. He comes, and he tells her, he says, trust God. Give me the last bit of your food. And she trusts God by faith, and by faith she was saved. And so here we have a hope. If she can just have faith, she too will be saved. Will she have that faith? The answer to that is yes. She had a great faith. She had an amazing faith. What made it so amazing? First of all, it was a bold faith. It was a bold faith. You ask yourself, what made it so bold? Remember, she has not been around Jesus. She hasn't seen 
Jesus perform any of these miracles with her own eyes. She hasn't even heard Jesus speak. She's heard of him somehow. She's, she's probably heard from somebody who was traveling down that way, maybe a merchant that traveled down into Israel and came back and now is saying all the things that Jesus had done, all the miracles that he had performed, all the things that he had taught. But as he, she was listening to that, one thing stood out. In that long list of all that he had done and all that he said, there was these words, and he could even cast out demons. And her heart came alive. And hope began to well up inside of her heart. Is this a possibility? Can Jesus help my daughter? And so she's very bold. She comes to Jesus. She's coming to her enemy. I cannot overemphasize. It's impossible to overemphasize how bold and how radical of a move this is. Because, but, but we have to try. We have to try to understand it. I think the only way really to understand how bold this is is, 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 is to say this. It would be very similar to say... The families from, from the, 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 those men, the terrorists that flew those planes into the World Trade Center, say they came to America, their families. And they came and they went to New York City and they found some of the families of the victims who died and burned to death and crumbled to death in that building. And they went to their families, they knocked on their door and they said, Hello, our family killed your family. I know that we're enemies, we're part of Al-Qaeda. I know that you've hated us, but our children need help. Will you help our children? And probably every single one of us would sit back and go, man, that's just not going to happen. Not only are they going to close the door, they may close the door on the life of those people. So this is a radical thing. This is extremely bold in what she does. But she comes to Jesus with the need and she shows the boldness. Why? Because she's a mom. And the point is, is all rationale goes out of the world. When, when your child is sick, when your child is in need, there's nothing you will not do to be able to help them. And so she comes, and she comes in faith, and she responds, and what she does is incredibly bold. But let me ask you this question. Do you come to God in boldness when you pray? You say, but you don't understand my need. It is a great need. It's a bold need. Do you come boldly with that bold need to Jesus? And you say, well, what gives us that right? Well, listen, she came boldly as an enemy of God. If you are in the faith of Jesus Christ, if you are a true son of God, you come not as an enemy, but as a son, as a child of God. And the word of God tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, he said, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you in need? Is there a need in your home? Is it a great need? Is it a massive? Do you come to him and God, God, you know, I'm just kind of going to throw this out to you. Maybe you will. Maybe you don't. No, come with boldness. Not because of who you are, but because of who you are in Jesus Christ. You're a child of God. And not just come with him and and ask him boldly, but boldly expect God to move in belief. Isn't that it sometimes? Sometimes we just sit back and go, I'm going to ask him, but I just don't know if he'll ultimately do it. Believe. The scriptures say in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, he says, "If if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those 
You'll ask him. It's a bold faith. Are you bold in your coming to Jesus? What are you, what are you waiting for? If you're a child of God, you've given access, come to him boldly. The second thing that makes this such a radical, awesome, amazing faith is that it's a persistent faith. It's a persistent faith. She comes to Jesus and she begs. And she begs and she begs. begs. The Greek tense here in the word of God is in the uh, present progressive tense, which simply means she just kept on doing it. (laughs) She didn't do it once. She kept doing it. Now, that seems impressive, but don't miss something. If she has to continually ask, that means that Jesus is not instantaneously answering. So get the picture. She came into the house. She kneels down, and she says, Jesus, will you please help my daughter? Please help her. And then there's silence. Jesus doesn't say anything. When this hit me this week of this, she doesn't have to keep asking if Jesus is responding immediately. But then she keeps asking. And it's almost a picture that I don't even like to think about. Here's Jesus, her begging, Jesus just looking down at her. Please, please heal my daughter. No response. Is Jesus indifferent to the woman? Does he not love the woman? This is not the picture of the Jesus that I know in the word of God, is it? What's going on here? Well, let's not forget the lessons that we've already learned in this particular book. Jesus waiting and Jesus not immediately responding is not a demonstration that he doesn't love us. Remember what happened when Jesus was crossing with the disciples in the boat across the sea? Do you remember that? What is Jesus doing as they're crying out, Jesus, save us, do you not love us anymore? The boat is filling up, we're going to die. What do they do? You don't love us, Jesus. You don't love us. They're screaming out. Jesus gets up and he kind of rubs the sleep. Can't really do that anymore. I got these things in my, rubs the sleep out of his face, right? And he's waiting. But did Jesus do that because he didn't love them? He didn't care for them? No, what was he doing? Here's what he's doing. He was pulling and drawing faith out of them. The time that they spent waiting upon God caused their faith to grow all the more. And the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. And God used that waiting in the midst of a difficult time to draw out the faith. Remember with Jairus. Did Jesus immediately respond? Did he immediately heal his daughter? No. Do you remember what happened? He goes, I'm going to your house, Jairus. Let's go. And on his way, there's a woman that touches him and he stops. She's on her deathbed and Jesus stops to be able to deal with another woman and to be able to help her. And in the process, a messenger comes and says, your daughter's dead. It's delaying. Was Jesus demonstrating a lack of love? No. He was drawing faith out in her. The same exact thing is going on here. He's allowing her to wait. He's allowing her to continue to beg, not because he doesn't love her. He's trying to pull out God-saving faith in her. Listen, ladies, some of you are in this Bible study. You're studying the book of James. Our men's group that's meeting on Wednesday night is now beginning to reflect on this. This is the passage we're reflecting on this week. Remember this, James 1, 2, 3, 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So she doesn't allow the silence of Jesus to deter her. 
But guess what? She doesn't allow the speech of the disciples to deter her either. If you were to look at the parallel passage of this in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 21, there in the scriptures, it says this, that when Matthew was, then when, Jesus, when she's begging Jesus, this is, what the, this is what the disciples were doing. His disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Boy, that's an encouragement, isn't it? Nothing like encouragement of the disciples of Jesus Christ. You kind of sit there and go, listen, I need help. And they're sitting there going, please, I'm begging you, do something. And the other people are sitting there going, man, send her away. Nothing like, you know, God's people sometimes, and I'm not talking about people outside. I'm talking about people inside. The disciples are on the inside, not at the outside. I'm amazed about how God's people can be so discouraging sometimes, right? You sit there and you say, listen, my brother has cancer. This happened on several occasions, not all. My brother has cancer. You remember that a couple years ago? And first thing, oh, no. Now, a believer in Jesus Christ, he's got cancer? He's got colon cancer? Only 5% of the people are going to survive for that. My dad had it, and he died in three weeks. Thank you very much for that encouraging, uplifting, encouraging word, right? What you're looking for is somebody to sit there and go, God's in control. God can do it. I don't know if he will. But God can do it. That's what you're looking for. And so she's, she's not letting any of this. That, look, those are the two biggest, I don't know about you, but those are the two biggest things that get me caught up and begin for me sometimes to lose faith is the silence of God and the speech of other people. But she doesn't, she doesn't turn. She doesn't give up. Sometimes you can sit there and say, well, maybe you're right to those people that are downing you and your belief. Maybe you're right. Maybe I just need to give up hope. Or, or maybe it's that person, that, that child that you've been praying for for so long and you're saying, you're sitting there going, man, I've been praying for 30 years and a person's like, why are you still praying? It's been 30 years. Here's what this woman's thinking and this is what we ought to as well. What else are we gonna do? Where else are we gonna turn? I'm reminded of that story and I believe it's John 6. I, I might be wrong on that, but yeah, John 6, I believe it is, it's a six, verse 68. It's, it's there where... Jesus is, Jesus is speaking to this large crowd and there's this huge crowd and he gets up and he starts saying things like, hey, if you want to come after me, you need to eat my flesh, drink my blood. And people are like, ew, this is not what we signed up for, right? We wanted the other food that you kept giving us. What is this blood, this blood, everything? The whole crowd just goes away, which normally happens when you ask people to eat flesh, all right? And so the disciples are still sticking around. And he goes, right, why, why don't you leave? Why don't you guys take off? And this is what they say, where else are we going to go? You're the only ones with the word of life. For this woman, she understands Jesus is the only hope. Jesus is the only one with life. Jesus is the only one that has the power to do this. Why in the world is she going to leave? So her faith was bold. Her faith, it was a, it was a bold faith. It was a persistent faith. And here's the last thing. Her faith was a humble faith. It was a humble faith. Jesus responds, but it's probably not the way that we're expecting him to respond. At least not for me. Verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, am I reading this right? Did Jesus just call this woman a dog, right? A dog. And remember from the Jewish perspective, a dog was not a good thing. This is not Randy on American Isles going, hey, yo, what's up, dog? All right, this is not dog, dog, diggity dog. All right, you're my dog. You're my friend. You're cool. This is not what's going on. And the Jewish mind... A dog was what? The lowest of the low, the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of all creatures. That's how they viewed the Jewish people, and they called them dogs. Is that what Jesus is doing here? 
Is he trying to, to tear this woman apart and trying to add to her pain? I don't think so for two reasons. Number one, remember the context. Jesus has just finished doing what? Condemning the, the religious leaders for this very thing. They said, what makes you clean is what you eat. What makes you clean is what you wear. What makes you clean is where you grew up. What makes you unclean is, is what nationality you are. And Jesus rebuked him over all that and said, man, none of that makes you unclean. What's in the heart is what makes you unclean. So it's hard to believe that Jesus would condemn them there and then immediately turn around and be guilty of the very thing that he had condemned them for. Second reason that I don't believe that he's trying to be evil or mean to her, calling her a scum dog, is because the word itself, the Greek word, is not the normal word that's used for an unkept, rabid street dog. Instead, it's a small dog. It's a, it's a house pet. It's a puppy. But isn't that still, well, okay, well, then it's a puppy. Then it's okay. I, as long as I'm not just big mangy mud, I'm okay. But, but doesn't that still leave her as a dog? Right? So that's just a little less offensive. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is speaking in a parable. Jesus has been speaking in parables through this entire book. Has he, y'all tracking with me? He's, 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 he's speaking in parables. And so he's been doing this all the way. He's teaching again in parables to see if this woman is really going to get into the parable and understand what he's saying and listen by faith. And we understand that the children that's, that he speaks of that, are, that need to be fed first, he's speaking of the children of God. He's te- speaking about the Jews. There is an order in which God had divinely set up. It, Paul says this later in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. The gospel is for everyone, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. But he says, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jesus comes to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, to come specifically to the Jews. Why? Because the Jews are going to be a, lost, a light into a lost and dying world. It's going to go through the, the salvation will go through the Jews to the lost world. Remember the promise back in Genesis chapter 12 when he says originally to Abraham, he says, through you all the nations will be blessed. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. So Jesus is saying, listen, Jesus is not saying, I won't help you. He's saying to her, you're not in the covenant family. And I came first and foremost for the covenant family. We'll get to you later, but now is just not the time. Now, what's interesting about this is she's not discouraged. In fact, notice something. She's the only one who's ever gotten Jesus' parables. For this whole time, the religious leaders just get ticked off at the parables. They don't understand a word that Jesus is saying because they're not listening with ears of faith. Even the disciples don't understand the parables of Jesus. They, they not only hear it, but they're like, okay, now, Jesus, we're behind closed doors. Now, tell us a little bit about what you were saying, right? You know, they're out when the parables are going on, and they're like, yeah, we understand this. Oh, you guys don't understand it. <laughs> we understand. Jesus, I don't understand a word that was coming out of your mouth. And so he's beginning to share, but Jesus has to unpack it. This is the only woman, woman, bad thing in this day, good thing today, bad thing in that day, Gentile, hated individual is the only one who gets what Jesus is saying. She understands the words. And so she responds to him. Look how she responds. But she answered to him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Oh, what is she saying? Well, she's showing, this is where we see the true humility. Notice something. She didn't suffer from a superiority complex. What did she do? In other words, she didn't sit there and go, oh, a dog? I'm a dog? You're going to call me a dog? Oh, you're going to get it there? That's where you're going to go? Uh-uh, I don't think so. 
right? And do the little, you know, the little head thing, right? If I didn't have neck surgery, I'd probably do that better. All right. So, so, so you, that, that's where you want to go with this whole thing? I can't believe, I've never been so offended in all my life for you to tell me my condition. And that's all that Jesus was saying is your condition is you are not a part of the family and you are a dog. You are set out. It's not for you. We'll get to you, but you do not have any of these rights. And so she doesn't go about getting angry. She recognizes her position. Listen, she recognizes her condition. She realizes that she has no rights. She knows that she can't merit Jesus' help. She knows that she cannot demand of Jesus anything. She knows that she doesn't have the religious, cultural, or moral credentials in which she could demand that Jesus do anything for her. That's what Jesus said. And she sits back and goes, I agree with you. I don't have a leg to stand on to make this request and to get you to do and to give me what I do not deserve. This is what she's saying. But I'm not basing this on my goodness. I'm basing my request on your goodness. I am asking you because you're good. Now, here's what's interesting. Many people will not inherit the kingdom of God and come to faith in Jesus Christ because they have a superiority complex. When they come to Jesus and you begin to share the gospel with them, you will have to fight over tooth and nail to try to convince them that they're sinners. Sinner? I'm not a sinner. What do you mean I'm a sinner? I sin every once in a while. Yeah, I have some sins, but I'm not inherently evil. What are you talking about? Then you try to get them to see their own sinfulness. You take them to the law. Well, have you ever told a lie? The Bible says thou shalt not lie. Have you ever told a lie? Yes, I've told a lie on occasion. Really? Well, what does that make you? Well, not a liar. Well, how many times do you have to lie to be a liar? I don't know, but I haven't hit that many times. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Or have you ever stolen anything? No, I don't believe you. You're a liar. You said it, right? And so, so I, mean, I mean, they'll sit back and they'll, they'll just, hey, and, and what happens is, remember this, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive. Why? Because in essence, what God is saying, you're a helpless dog. You're not even a child. You're not a child. You're a dog. And we have to humble ourselves in the same exact way. If we're going to receive the grace and the mercy extended from Jesus Christ, it's not because of the potentials, it's because of our position. We come and we go, everything you say about me is absolutely true. I'm lost, I'm a sinner, I'm not deserving of your love. I deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on me because I am guilty of it. But I come to you recognizing that, asking on your goodness, not mine. The second thing is she doesn't suffer she doesn't suffer from an inferiority complex. She didn't think she didn't come to her and think because this is the this is the problem that we make sometimes. Sometimes we'll sit there and say, "Well, brother, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm gone. I know. In fact, I'm so sinful that Jesus can't even forgive me." I'm so bad, and if you knew what I would do, you'd understand I'm beyond grace. That sounds so humble, but it is so wicked, so demonic, and so evil, and so sinful. Because yes, you've got the right view of yourself, but you don't have the right view of Christ. Because you have gotten it right with you, but you have underestimated the value of Christ and his sacrifice of death on the cross. It covers a multitude of sins. You can't out-sin God. Now, if your attitude is, I'm going to try, then you're not in the faith. But there's no sin that he cannot forgive. There's no, you can't go so far. And she understands this. She understands that as wicked as she is, and she agrees that she's not outside of it. Let me notice this. When Jesus uses the word children, he uses the Greek word technon, which means biological children. 
But when she responds to Jesus, she uses the word paidon for children, which is the broader term. It includes both children and servants in the house. This is what she's saying. I know that I'm not deserving, but I know your grace is broad and wide, and it covers all people, even me, the dog. And then Jesus responds. The Bible says he responds to this, not for her credentials, but because of the faith. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, and she found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. This is amazing faith. And I don't know what your need is this morning. It might be salvation. You must see yourself as God sees you before you are saved. As a lost, helpless individual. A dog, if you will. Not worthy to sit at the table of God. But here's what I want you to understand. Maybe this will allow you to embrace who you are apart from Jesus Christ. We were dogs. Made children. But please understand how we were made that way. The Son of God became a dog. So that we might become sons. So that we can for all eternity eat at the banqueting table of God because he humbled himself to the point of death and even death on the cross he who knew no sin became sin became a dog so that we might become his righteousness if you see yourself for who you are and see him for who he is call out for his help today be bold be persistent and be humble Jesus, we come to you this morning. We love you. We praise you. I thank you for the power of your word this morning. God, I pray that some will be saved. I pray.